Thank you, Michelle and Jessica. Appreciate that. What an honor it is to worship the Lord this morning. Thank you, worship team, for bringing us into the presence of God and and uh, putting our just bringing our corralling our focus right on Christ and the goodness of God in our lives. We are in Nehemiah chapter five this morning, working our way through this book of Nehemiah. And we found that Nehemiah is a book about a man with a broken heart. Uh, who has a heart for a broken city and the broken people in that city. And this city has been in neglect because of the disciplining hand of God for over a century now. And Nehemiah is there to rebuild it, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the people into a people that once again live according to the teachings of Scripture and to a people that repent from sin and trust in the God of the Bible. And so after great loss, they are striving to rebuild their lives of worship. That's how they regain their ground. That's how they regain their focus. And just like it was back then, so it is today. A life of worship is the alternative to a culture that is crumbling. To a culture that... Went backwards. A life of worship is the alternative. And as the church today, we want to be reminded as we often bemoan the the state of our present state of our culture and how evil things are becoming. We want to remind ourselves that just because our culture sinks or falls away from God, just because our culture grows a cold heart against God doesn't mean we have to, nor should we. But we can continue to live according to. To scripture and we can continue to repent of our sin and put our trust in the God of the Bible. That's the alternative to a crumbling culture always was and always will be repentance and trust. And so when God becomes our priority, our focus, as was prayed during our time of worship, you know, when we. Love the Lord, our God, with all our hearts and our neighbor as ourselves, when we're consumed with that. There's little place for evil. Have you ever noticed that in your life that when you take the time and the effort to really put your energies towards focusing on God and loving your neighbor? All of a sudden, the other things that we were busy with, we're not as concerned about anymore. So this is the state that Israel finds themselves in. And they're continuing to try to make changes every day for the glory of God. Now, last week we looked at Nehemiah's successful attempts in in overcoming the challenges and the opposition to the work of God. And they were external challenges. They were challenges from their external enemies. And today we see that the challenges become or the challenges come from the inside. They are internal challenges. And we want to learn from what. God's book has to say to us this morning. And I should forewarn you as believers that we're going to talk about money this morning. A lot of times when you talk about money from the pulpit, people squiggle and squirm and they hide their purses and they don't want anybody to see how thick their wallets are or things like that. You know, it's been said that our wallets are the last thing to be sanctified from the Lord. I've also heard it said that our our foot, meaning the one on the gas pedal, is the last thing to, part of our bodies to be sanctified for the Lord. That's probably more true for me. 
But money is it's something that has a tendency to be close to our hearts. But we want to just hear what God has to say about money, really Christian stewardship. And and, uh, how can we submit ourselves to this very practical thing that we deal with every day? And that is our possessions. That is our livelihood. And commit that to the Lord. So first we see the remonstrance in verses um, in chapter five, the first five verses, the remonstrance or the complaint that they bring before them. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So the wives are in on it now, you know, it's serious when the wives are in it, for there were those who said. With our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So what's going on here? What's the complaint? I mean, in chapter 4, they overcame the external opposition to the mission of God. They, the wall was going up. And now... What happened to this progress? Well, they are making progress on the wall, but there's been this this building and building and building up of this financial crisis and this financial burden. And finally, it just explodes. The people have had enough. They can't go any farther. So what is the problem? Well, in these verses, we find the first hardship is a famine. It's not a lot you can do about a famine. It's just you just have to press through and live through it. But there's a famine. And so even the land that they have isn't producing like it like it could be producing. And, you know, this is an agrarian culture. I mean, they rely. They live off the land. Uh, they, they can't go to Walmart and get their groceries during the week. And so they're practically some of them are practically starving to death because they just can't produce produce enough to feed their families. And, you know, when you're not hungry, you're not happy. And so they are not happy about this. And second, they can't buy grain without first borrowing money. That's how hard the times are. They have to literally, because they can't produce it themselves, they have to find another source. And so they have to borrow money just to put food on the table. Just to eat their meals, just to stay alive. And so in order to borrow the money, they have to kind of pawn off their possessions. They have to pawn off their land and maybe the equipment they have. Their homes. So it's theirs, but they owe so much on it, it's really not theirs. And so even if it did produce, they owe whatever it would produce the profits. So they're in a place where they really just can't get their footing. They really don't have a good way to reestablish themselves in making a living. And it's kind of like today where people get in debt just way over their heads. 
And there's, there's like no possibility of paying it off. No matter how hard you work, no matter what you do, you've exhausted all your resources, all your possessions and so forth. And you just don't know what to do. Uh, these people are crying out a, a way for a way to make things work before they just go completely bankrupt and, and become homeless. And then third, to add on top of the famine and having to borrow money, there's the king's taxes. Uh, taxes have always been a, a burden to the people. We whine and complain about taxes. I do. And they did in that day because whoever is the governing power of the day, they have a certain way that they, they have policies that they want to fulfill. It all takes money. Their projects that they want to do, the lifestyle that they want to live. And so the governing bodies in this time and day, it was Persia, and they had a king. And he taxed his subjects very, very heavily so he could fulfill his little policies that he liked. And so Israel is destitute. They're just absolutely destitute during this time that Nehemiah is ministering to them. You know, I've heard, and I'm sure you have too, of examples and stories, news reports of parents that are poor and they often employ their children to steal for them. They'll put them out on the streets to steal people's purses or to be pickpockets or to shoplift. And that becomes a means of their livelihood to put food on the table because if the kids get caught, you know, they're just juveniles and they won't go to jail. And so it becomes a way of life. In Israel, when times got really desperate, what they would do is they would basically sell their children off or kind of rent their children out, the labor of their children, to pay off debt. So uh, was, your children were kind of equity. Their labor was equity. And if you had to borrow money from someone, sometimes the only thing, way you could pay them back is say, here's my child. They will labor you for you and work for you as an indentured servant, basically, until my debts are paid. And so the times were so desperate in Israel at this time that parents were without their kids. They were farmed out to other places. Now, on top of all this, remember that they are putting their precious hour and what little resources they have. They've been giving their all into this project of building the wall. So they're trying to make a living. There's a famine going on. There's heavy taxes. They're borrowing money. And they're also trying to fulfill this mission that's on God's heart and on their hearts as well of, of putting the rocks in place so that they can rebuild their lives of worship. That's their act of worship for God at that time. The sweat required for that. Digging in the gravel. Now, they can't do anything about the famine. That's in God's control. And they can't do a whole lot about the taxes. That's in the king's control. He's the authority at the time. So the one thing that they can try to make a, at least they have a hope of making a successful appeal about, is what's taking place within their own camp, within their own people. One thing that they can perhaps do something about is put a stop to the greed that's taking place. Because what's happening here is that their own people, their own flesh and blood, who, people who call themselves the people of God, are taking advantage of their destitute and their poverty, and they are becoming rich off of the poor. The ones that have 
enough money to survive are providing things for the poor so that they can take their land, so that they can take their crops, so that they can use their money for their own uh, or their children for their own labor to build their little kingdoms up. And so it's a matter of greed that's taking place. And it's within the people of God. And it's just a reminder, another reminder that a lot of times we have a tendency to think that if our, our external problems could be solved, we would just thrive and do so well. And it's just a reminder, a good, gentle reminder that the church's problems aren't always from the outside. Many times they're from the inside. And we need to do the work in here as well as the out. That's so easy to blame the, um, you know, the, the liberals or the conservatives or or the feminists or the fundamentalists and, and uh, all these threats out there and blame our politicians. But sometimes the threats come from the people that we know. Not the atheists who don't know, but sometimes the threat and the hindrance comes from the people who do know or at least claim to know God. So that's what's happening here. Greed. Their hearts are filled with the opportunity of more dollars rather than their hearts being filled with compassion rather than loving their neighbor. You know, in the New Testament, we're told that. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say that money is evil. Money's not evil. The money can be used for evil. And if we let it get the best of us and take over our hearts and it becomes our obsession, then we're going to use it for evil. But money can be used for good things. Um, New Testament also says uh, man needs to provide for his family. How are you going to do that? It takes money. It takes work. So... We need money to fulfill our responsibilities before God. We can use our money to to help orphans, to help widows. Uh, we can use our money to help the, die, the downtrodden. We can use our money to put towards missions and watch the gospel expand. So we can use it for good things. Money, in, in essence, is neutral. But we could also uh, use it for evil things. We could use it for casinos. Use it for bars. Use it for strip clubs and so forth. So it's a matter of the condition of our heart with this possession that we have. The problem here is not money, but the love of money. The love of money. That's perhaps why we get nervous when they talk about passing the plate yet another time and you know, it's hard not to feel guilty when you see such tremendous need, not just in the church, but in people's lives. It's hard not to feel guilty. We have to wrestle with what to do with the blessings that God has given us. That's a Christian responsibility. And there is a balance that can be had. And that this passage actually helps us with that. It's interesting that if you read the Gospels, that Jesus talks about money and possessions about 25 percent of the time. His teachings touch on money or stewardship or possession. So what we're really talking about is Christian stewardship. In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus just comes right out and he says it. You can't love God and money. They're in competition to one another. So he sets it straight. So those that are those that might be tempted to think that I can have I can keep them both and I can pursue both. It's like there's a he's saying there's another lover in the house <laughs> and you are meant to be chased 
only to God. So you can't do both. And he also says, you know, where's your where's your treasure? Because that's where you can bank on finding your heart. We, we just pursue the things that we love. We invest in the things that we love. And so Jesus calls us to the table in that. Christians have are to have a specific way of viewing their possessions. I know the world has their way. Before I was a believer, I had a certain way of looking at business and looking at money. By the way, our next Proverbs sermon will be on business principles. So you'll hear some of this again on Communion Sunday. And it's, it's transforming. But Christian stewardship means that we have a specific way to view our wealth and our possessions. And it's not... The position is this, that what we have does not ultimately belong to us. That's the Christian teaching. God has given it to us. We're responsible for it. We get to manage it. We get to to be the steward of it. But it's not ultimately ours. It's given to us to use for God's purposes. That's the Christian view of stewardship in a, a nutshell. So I am to dispense it. And disperse it in a way that honors God. Sometimes the question we need to ask is not how much I should keep, but how much I should give. So when we get our paycheck, when we get a bonus, when we get whatever. The question we want to ask and we we need to wrestle with is how much of this do I need to provide for my own and my own responsibilities? And how much am I to give for your glory? We should never assume That everything we get is strictly for our use. It's not to build another barn like the rich person in the New Testament. But we want to look at our things in light of how can I use this for your glory? I um, have a rental property in Farmville and I cut the grass every week. So I bring my mower over there and I have a walk behind mower, not a push mower. I get to ride on it. I'm a little sulky. And so I cut the grass there. And one day I was cutting my grass and my neighbor... So um, he was actually the grandfather, didn't live in the house, and he's out in the front yard and he's trying to push, he's trying to pull start a push mower. And uh, I, I just see him getting very frustrated as I'm riding around on my walk behind mower. Uh, and he is inebriated on top of all that, so he's just at the end of his rope. And finally he comes staggering over to me, how much you charging me to cut this grass? I'm tired of, this thing doesn't work. And he kicks it. And... Uh, so I said, you know, I'll, I'll be glad to cut it for you free. Said, no, 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 no free, no free. You got how much you want? I said, $20. He said, all right. And every, I want you to cut it all summer for $20. I'll give you $20. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I thought, well, we'll see how that works. So I, you know, this summer, that's what I've been doing. I cut my grass and then I, I go over there and cut theirs. Now, that was the only $20 I've ever gotten from them. So when I cut their grass, sometimes I do it with a little bit of an attitude. Now, I do it for good motives because there's a family in there with kids and they like to play. And it's hard to play football and stuff when your grass is that high. And so I, I kindly, by the grace of God, the, the, the image of God comes out in me and that I really want to serve them and be a witness uh, for Christ. But the flesh is in there, too. And I'm kind of like, I'll never get this money. He ain't going to pay me. It's just all charity work over here. He's not a man of his word. So the last time I was last two times, two times ago when I was cutting it, I'm getting ready to go over there to do their grass. And that's what I'm thinking about. 
And then the thought comes, do you ever think that the reason, one of the reasons you have this mower, one of the reasons that I gave you this mower is so you could cut the grass? I thought, ouch. Hmm, never really looked at it that way before. Maybe one of the reasons that God blessed me with that mower is so that I could be used by God to minister to those people. And it's just a whole different perspective that, that this thing that I worked for and paid for and I used for myself, that God might want to use it for other things. And it reminds me of that mysterious passage in the New Testament where Jesus is about to make his triumphal entry and he tells his disciples to go in this town. He's going to, there's a cult there and I want you to take that cult. And if anybody says anything, of course... So if you see your car, somebody get in your car and they're starting to drive off. Whoa, 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 what are you doing? He says, anything, if anybody says anything, say, the Lord has need. Like that cult played a part in the story of redemptive history. This other person's cult, Jesus used it to ride in on. Our possessions, cutting the neighbor's grass, bringing them a meal. Putting an anonymous gift wherever. Our possessions like that play a literally play a part in redemptive history. That's God's plan for them. That is Christian stewardship. So what we do with our money counts. And it's okay. And it's not a guilt trip. Because God wants, he, he blesses us with things. And we sometimes, the Apostle Paul says, sometimes I have more than I need. And sometimes I, I don't even know how I'm going to eat. But we have these things because God gives them to us. When we go out to eat, technically, we're spending God's money. And we buy something new, we buy something used. When we, when we tithe, when we have the, the opportunity, as Kevin prayed, it's an opportunity. We do it cheerfully. You've given us this and we're just giving it back to you. It's all ultimately God's. And that's the, the truth that we have to find the balance on and come to grips with that is that we are managing the resources that God has given us. He's good to share with us. He doesn't have to, but he does. He's gracious and willing. And we're to have that same attitude to be gracious and willing to receive the gifts, but not to hold on them so tight that we think, nope, this is mine. Just like you might find in the nursery. This is my toy and you are not playing with it. And it's the community of the saints. The way we live and manage our money has an impact. It's a witness to others. And it really affects us because we do life together. The way we spend our money and manage our money affects all of us inadvertently and sometimes personally. Because we need to cooperate. We need to be obedient in order to accomplish the mission that God wants New Covenant Fellowship to accomplish. Individually in our homes and also corporately as a church. So it affects us one way or another. So that's what's happening in Nehemiah's day. The, the downtrodden, they, they just have no hope the way things are. They cry out. And they appeal to the authorities to do something about this injustice that's taking place. The rich are, are exploiting the poor. And even the wives get in on it because, you know, when moms can't feed their kids, then that's big stuff. And they're going to have something to say about it. So they're saying, 
get off the couch. Honey, get off the couch. Go do something about this. I'm running out of food here. The kids are whining and crying. You got it. We got to change. Life has to change. Do something about it. So in this time, they this example, they have a good reason to be panicking, speaking against the injustice. Now, one thing we want to do, be careful to do, and I just want to take a minute to mention this because of our cultural setting is to make sure we realize that it's not a matter of uh, having the money. That's the wrong thing. It's not a matter of being rich. That's evil and wrong. And actually, in our culture, you are seeing a shift concerning what it means to have money and not it's it's or not have money. There's not a Christian stewardship view of money anymore in our culture uh, that is becoming somewhat with, with socialistic policies. The rich are really in the eye of those and they are looked at as the problem of the world, because if you're rich, it's assumed you're greedy and you're going to exploit people. That's why you're rich to begin with. And so in our culture, before your very eyes, the rich are becoming people's enemies and they don't deserve that much money. We need to take that money away from them and spread it out. And that is not a scriptural view of finances, nor is the prosperity gospel, which is the other extreme that says, uh, no, actually being rich is good. And if you're not rich, then there's sin in your life because God wants you to be rich. So there's a lot of extremes going on in our day. Mark Driscoll, in one of his sermons, wisely points out that the conflict in Scripture isn't about the rich and the poor. The conflict in Scripture is about the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the way we need to look at it. It's between the righteous poor and the unrighteous poor, or there are righteous rich and there are unrighteous rich. The righteous rich people are great stewards of God's money. God funnels things through them and they and they they work hard. They manage it well. They're frugal. They're not wasteful and they give cheerfully. They give sacrificially and God can, can continues to bless them. They're the righteous rich. They do the right thing. And it's not a sin for them to be wealthy. They work hard and they they're just wise and they invest well and they help all they can. Now, there are the unrighteous rich people who will take you. For every penny you have and they'll use their 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 wealth to take you to court and sue you. Take what little bit you got left and they use their wealth to try to skirt around the law to pay lawyers because they can afford it to get away with things. And, yeah, they'll explore it. And when and when you're down and you're needy, they'll take what you have. They'll buy your land. They'll uh, they'll refuse to buy your produce so that it just rots. I mean, they're. There is the unrighteous rich. And then there's also the righteous poor people. These are people, they work hard and they're honest. They work for what they have. But they just, for whatever reason, a variety of reasons, um, they just can't seem to get ahead. Maybe they don't want to. Maybe they're content with this standard of living. They don't want any more. Uh, maybe it's because it's a single person, a single parent home, or uh, they... There's a sickness. There's a lot of reasons why people may be in face financial hardship. But they are righteous. They're hardworking. They still give to the Lord's work. They're honest. And then there's the unrighteous poor. And they're the ones that what little they have, they use unwisely. They squander it. They're prone to say get rich quick schemes and 
And they just use their money for very irresponsible things. Even if they have opportunity, they're going to blow it. It's the unrighteous poor. I like what Darrow Miller has to say about the poor as well. Because it also helps us to determine. We often struggle with who do we help? There just seems to be so many needs out there. And who do we help? He categorizes the poor into three different categories. And it's similar to Driscoll's. And he says, first, there's the working poor. And they're, they're hardworking, but they just never seem to get ahead. And sometimes they just need a little gift, a little boost. But mo- for the most part, they're okay. They're hardworking. <clears throat> they're going to find a way to make ends meet. Then there are the deserving poor. This may be handicapped or the elderly. They would love to be able to provide for themselves, but they just can't. And so they, they, they need help. They, they deserve help. <clears throat> Even their best is not enough. And then he says there's the undeserving poor. And these are the people that could work, but just don't. They just don't. They have, they have the ability. They have the means. They have the health, the resources, but they just refuse to. And he says they are the undeserving poor because they're not using what God is giving them, the ability. They're just squandering it. The New Testament says if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Now, if you can't work, you're the deserving poor. But if you don't work, then you shouldn't eat. And that's a little closer to home. We have so many buffers in today's society uh, that keep us from going hungry because there, there are a lot of handouts. There's charity from churches. There's government programs. We often don't feel the sting of our own unrighteousness. We still get to have our cake and eat it, too. In Scripture, the policy was you didn't work, you didn't eat. Don't sit down at the table. You didn't do your chores this week. So they are being exploited. This is a sin because God's word expressly addresses these things in two areas. First of all, he told his own people not to charge each other interest. In Deuteronomy 23, 19, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. This is within the commonwealth of Israel. Interest or money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Now, there are other scriptures that talk about policies and business and so forth. You can loan, you can, you can barter so that you both come out okay. But when, when it's for the purpose of helping somebody that needs help, creating jobs or whatever, you do not ch- charge interest in a way that causes them, because of your interest, to be poverty-stricken. And you, you cannot purposely take advantage of them and become rich because they can't make ends meet. So they are violating scripture in that sense. And then the second command that they're breaking is God tells his own people, the commonwealth of Israel, not to take one another as slaves. They are forbidden to buy one another as slaves. Leviticus 25, 39 through 46, just to hit a few of them. Uh, They're my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. Verse 42, they shall not be sold as slaves. Now, the Jewish people could have foreigners as slaves and the Jewish people could have um, rent out their children, so to speak, as indentured servants. They're more like workers, but it's not to be an enslavement atmosphere. God forbids it because he redeemed his people from slavery. And so he owns them 
Nobody else is allowed to own them in the commonwealth of Israel. And they're doing that. So the rich are obeying or disobeying Scripture. And they are complaining about what's the response to Nehemiah? They take it to the elders. How do you respond to something like this? Here's what Nehemiah says. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. And I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. So what is the word when he says, I was very angry? What does that mean in Hebrew? He was miffed. <laughs> he was miffed. He was upset. He was ticked off. He, he was he was he was angry. And so it's, it's the emotion as he hears about this injustice. And a lot of times we don't still in the Christian community, we struggle with this idea of anger. I mean, you picture this righteous leader, Nehemiah, he's he's angry. Maybe he pounded the table. I don't know. But he it was obvious that his this emotion of anger rose up in him. What do we do with that? Is that OK? Because a lot of times today we, we just we're supposed to be like Jesus, right? And Jesus is always smiling, blonde hair and blue eye, blue eyes. And he just smiles all the time, no matter what happens in life. And that's not really an accurate picture. Emotion. The reason Nehemiah got angry is because he's created in the image of God and God gets angry. Emotion, the anger, the, the emotion of anger is not a bad emotion. God gets angry. There are times where we should be angry. The question is, how do we use it? And scripture gives us guidelines about anger. And so a lot of times we 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 go on a guilt trip unnecessarily when things tick us off or myth or Memphis. There are things that should if a child gets abused. If a woman gets abused, those things should make us angry because they are wrong. They are evil. God gets angry at evil and his wrath is the application of this good emotion of anger because that emotion should come. I mean, what else can you do if we didn't have the emotion of anger? Can you imagine just smiling through the injustices and evils of our age? But we have this emotion of anger and it can be a very, very good thing. Now, Exodus 34 reminds us something about God's anger, and that is he is slow to become angry. The Lord passed when he uh, Moses saw him in the cleft of the rock. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So God's not hot headed. He doesn't carry a chip on his shoulder. He's not at any moment ready to fly off the handle like some people are. He gets hot. He gets angry, but it takes him a long time to get there, which means to connect the dots. If God is angry at us. It means that we have been really, really stubborn and hard headed and rebellious because if he's angry at us, it's because we have just dissed him for a long time and lived our own way. He has a long fuse, not a short one, but he does get angry. Jesus got angry and displayed his anger when he turned over the money tables. That was sacrilegious, turning this sacred place into 
uh, into a place to get rich, a place where prayers should happen in there, using it to exploit the people. So that was a righteous anger. So we temper it by asking ourselves, is this a righteous anger? And also James tells us to be slow to become angry. He doesn't say don't become angry. Paul says don't sin in your anger. So it's a legitimate emotion. Reminds me of uh, when Lisa texts me. She uses and this you're going to think I'm really silly. But uh, the reason I asked you this morning, what do you call those little yellow smiley faces on the phone? Because she always sends me their emojis for emotions. I just got that this morning when I was looking at it, thinking about the sermon and emotions. That's how slow I am in some things. But we want to ask ourselves when we get angry, is this okay? Many times we just get angry and we and we blow it. We write a nasty letter. We speak nasty words and 30 minutes where we do nasty things. And 30 minutes later, we're thinking, man, why did I do that? Now I'm just I just made matters worse. A good example of of a righteous anger, I think, not being vengeful is happening in our day and age when we think about. What happened in Charleston, South Carolina, and then also the riots that are taking place in Ferguson and, and uh, Baltimore. And what has happened is um, in the cities, it is believed that an injustice has happened. And the way that people, they're angry. And the way that people react is they bring harm to others. They loot. Not everybody, but some. That's how they're, they're applying their anger. They hurt others. They loot. They put people in the crosshairs. Um, they're destructive. Then you have this example in Charleston, South Carolina, with something that is absolutely known. And these other things in the cities were court cases and nobody knew for a while if it was even uh, a violation. In South Carolina, it was a known fact where a white man walks into a church with black worshipers and kills innocent people. And there was anger there. There was a great injustice, but these were Christians that love God. And so what is their response? They do not return evil for evil. That, by the way, is a huge event. What we watched. I'm so sad that you don't see it on the, in the headlines anymore because the media likes to fuel the violence. We're going to hear all about the violence in the cities. It's more exciting. But what just happened in South Carolina changes lives because they're saying we're going to let justice be done but we're not going to return evil for evil see they did that because it is the christian response it is how you change culture it's how you don't become the evil of the culture but you change it because truth is always true and right is always right it is an incredible thing what they have done and we should not take that lightly it's countercultural, absolutely Huge. Nehemiah was angry too. What did he do? He says, verse 7, I took counsel with myself. That's what we need to do. What's he saying? Man, I'm angry, but before I go reacting, I want to see how my emotion is. Is this a righteous anger? Do I have a right to be angry? And if so, what would God have me to do about this? And that's a great question. He chilled before he talked to anybody else. 
Is it a good anger? Should I feel this way? And after that, he talked it over with the assembly. And then he says, he makes the charge. You are exacting interest. This is a crime. It is a violation of scripture. They have done wrong. They've disobeyed, they've disobeyed God. They fail to love him and fail to love their neighbor. They're not above the law. And so they are judged by God's word. And then lastly, the resolution in 7 through 13. We begin with verse 8, actually. So we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Well, they were silent and they could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? To prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olives, orchards, and their houses, and their percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. Also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is basically an example of church discipline. The, the evildoers that called themselves believers were called to the carpet and say, look, you can't keep ripping people off. It's against scripture and you can't call yourself a believer and then rip your fellow brothers and sisters off. And so they encouraged them to live right, to repent and live right before God. Now, Nehemiah, we find out, is actually trying to use his funds. And he's a wealthy person. We'll find out that next uh, couple weeks from now. Um, he's very wealthy. What he's doing is he's buying his brothers back from foreign slavery, bringing them into land so they can have a fresh start. And these greedy people are reselling them to their own people as indentured slaves. So he, he confronts them. What are they? What do they do? They're silent. Have you ever been sitting in the chair and you know you're busted? I mean, you are busted. And what, you know, your, your, your mind is searching for justification, a way to get out of it, but there's no wiggle room. And so you just kind of like, Yep, that's what they did. What else could they say? They were wrong. So Nehemiah gives them, as we wind down here, he gives them two bits of advice. First, he says they need to fear the Lord. Basically, he's saying, fear the Lord. In other words, don't forget about God. Don't forget about the law of God and who you're supposed to be living for. Don't forget about the consequences of evil and the consequences of sin. Live like you respect the Lord. You've lost the fear of God. Greed had become their God. So they need to put God back on the throne of their hearts. And then secondly, they need to get right with God so their enemies don't taunt them. Interesting. We looked at this in Ephesians when we this morning in Sunday school, when we don't live the way God has called us to live, we are a bad witness. Now, we can be a good witness or we can be a bad witness. And when we call ourselves believers and don't do the things that God asks us to do, it gives the world an excuse to look at us and taunt us and mock us and call us hypocrites and so forth. And I know that's reality and that we're not perfect 
But it's also reality that we can be used as mockery. And so he's saying the nations are here. We are calling ourselves a peaceable of God. We worship the only one true God. We have a specific way he's called us to live and we're not doing it. And they're making fun of us because you are not doing it. They become self-absorbed. So they say the result of this confrontation and discipline is the best that anybody can, could hope for. They say we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Another beautiful thing where someone has repented. They have felt the conviction of their sin. You say you're right. I'm wrong. And I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to repent. And I'm actually going to make restitution. I'm going to give the things back I should never have taken in the first place, including the crops, the goods, the land and the money. It's change. And then they all have a celebration. They all praise the Lord. Who wouldn't when you see this kind of repentance because a great spiritual work has been done. The wayward sheep have been brought back into the fold, into the submission and the ways of God's holy word. So the perfect God of heaven has once again visited sinful man and brought forth a change of heart so that his people can live according to his word and be a light in the darkness. Be salt, the salt in the earth and the people praise him for that. And that's what God calls us to be. See, there, there to be a city within a city, a culture within a culture. And that is our calling today. We are to live differently, not for the sake of living differently, but for the sake of conforming our lives to how God tells us to live as his children. And there will be a difference between us and the world. And we do this for God's glory. So we want to search our hearts. We want to search our hearts. We want to think about our possessions. We want to think about the way we're living before God. Are we living lives that communicate that person fears and respects his God? Are we living lives that communicate that what we have ultimately is God's? I want to close with the words that we sang in our worship song this morning. With our hearts, we will listen to your word and envision what you'd have us change, what you'd have us change. Now we come to surrender all to you, our defender. We hold on to you. We hold on to you. May God bless the proclamation of his word this morning.